I see as a barrier in lifestyle medicine is that people really don't understand what truly matters. They're so kind of sidetracked by all of the things that social media and marketing and hypey things that are out there. Hi, I am Alok and I'm your host at Fitterobic. Welcome to Fitness Pro Chat, the podcast by Fitterobic. Welcome to Fitness Pro Chat by Fitterobic. If you're looking to improve your health and well-being to lead a healthy, fit, and fulfilling life, whether you're an amateur or a professional athlete, this podcast is for you. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to you all. I am once again joined by Sammy Mansfield, who is an oncology, exercise, and lifestyle medicine leader. Today, Sammy and I will talk about how cancer patients can adopt the pillars of lifestyle medicine to help improve their quality of life and metabolic health. Welcome to the show, Sammy. Thanks again for having me. Great to see you and great to be back. Extending our conversation a little deeper. Absolutely, Sammy. I remember the last time we talked about uh, cancer patients and we talked about how caregivers help them out and, and the importance of uh, caregiving, for, especially for these patients and the entire ecosystem that supports uh, cancer warriors. So, thinking on that, I have a few questions for you. And since we are right now in February, January has already passed. <laughs> and uh, by now, most of the New Year resolutions that everyone would, would have started would have flied and, and uh, no, people would be struggling to maintain the same kind of pace and the enthusiasm that they would have on first week of January or maybe mid of <laughs> January. What are your th- thoughts on this time frame, especially in relation to someone uh, has been diagnosed with cancer how they can pick up themselves from here and and build a quality life uh, in then the rest of the 2024. It's a great question. You know, we we hear it every year. For those of us that have been in this industry as long as I have, you know, it's like this influx of people. If you're working out at a gym, that show up in the new year. But I think that what we need to remember, especially when it comes to cancer and thinking about caregivers, is even though someone has a diagnosis today. On you know February the fourth this year, whatever time frame that is, the side effects and the you know fallout of that is really lifelong, right? Like so many yeah. of the things that happen are lifelong. I think we tend to think that we should only be you know healthy in the new year and that we don't prioritize it. Yes. But I think all of us here that are listening are in one of three camps. We're either trying to prevent or reduce our risk of cancer, right? Absolutely, we are going through it, or we have gone through it. And so I think that we forget that none of us are immune and lifestyle is really a key um, piece in all of those. So no matter what day it is, I don't care if it's July or October or whatever holiday is happening, our health and lifestyle is really the most powerful thing that we can control every single day. And it should be prioritized, especially for people that are impacted by cancer. True, true. And I want to understand from say, obesity side, because obesity is a, one of the major risk factors for several cancer types. And uh, right. how exactly uh, lifestyle medicine leaders like you leverage this knowledge to reduce uh, risk and support cancer warriors in their uh, improving their quality of life? It's a great question. I mean, we know, we see around the world, I don't care where you live, that obesity is climbing, right? In the cancer space, we now know that obesity is linked to 13 types of cancer, just documented. And some of those are actually kind of surprising. Pancreatic cancer, which is, you know, really has poor prognostic um, markers or just poor prognosis. 
multiple myeloma, which is a bone marrow cancer um, and a really uh, specific one that we as exercise professionals work with, you know, these other ones, brain cancer has a role um, in a link to obesity. However, obesity isn't just necessarily causation, meaning obese, you get Uh cancer. It's what we know as correlation. So this is where lifestyle and modifiable risk factors come into play and why lifestyle habits are so important because it isn't just related to your weight on the scale or you know your BMI or body composition. It is the other metabolic health markers that we know increase our risk of not only cancer, but the other diseases um, such as diabetes or cardiovascular disease sure. or even neurodegenerative disease. So people will say, I want to you know, have a healthy brain as I age. Well, uh-huh. obesity and lifestyle medicine are important for you too. So I think it's really important to understand that kind of tie. But obesity is what we measure. It's really easy to measure obesity. It's a little harder to measure metabolic health per se, right? It's a little more subjective. Absolutely. And and given that uh, we are more focused on the six pillars of uh, lifestyle medicine, are there any emerging areas that you see, especially under lifestyle medicine, that you feel that, yes, it's high time to club and then bring those areas as well within the spectrum of lifestyle medicine so that it could benefit the larger audience? Well, I mean, I think all of the pillars, of course, are going to be really important, right? So just a quick review, if we think about it, of course, exercise, why we're here, nutrition, a plant-predominant whole food diet. I mean, not necessarily vegan, but plant-predominant. Stress management, sleep, social connections is really important. We see the epidemic of loneliness hitting our world. And then the last pillar is kind of interesting. It's avoidance of risky or unhealthy behaviors. So that one actually needs to come up to kind of conversation because we think about tobacco or alcohol, but Uh really we are now understanding sedentary behavior, sitting all day, even for you and I, if we're doing meetings or other professional things, sometimes we sit too much. And the other one is um, sugar sweetened beverages or added sugars which across the world are in 70 plus percent of the foods that are available, if not more, right? So I think that there's two big pillars that have the most power initially to help people not just change their metabolic health, but help them feel better. One is, of course, going to be exercise because people feel better when they move. And then secondly, you know, is really thinking about that avoidance of behaviors because sometimes it's easier just to avoid things than to add new habits. So I think that that habit change piece is really interesting. So much science is an exercise and then honestly added sugars. So I think that those pillars um, and inactivity is kind of considered to be the new worldwide smoking. I think those Uh pillars really need to come up at the forefront. Personally, I think nutrition is much harder. You know, you got to be really motivated. You have to have time. You have to have money. You have to have like a support system to eat healthier. I told people like, Try to eat, you know, real foods and then get moving. And I think it's a little easier. And the science is really backing the importance of that pillar being the foundation. Absolutely. And you talked about uh, sedentary lifestyle and added sugar. And there have been multiple research which claims that if someone exercises for say 30 minutes a day, they need to move more during the entire day in and a day and mm-hmm. keep themselves physically active. So my question to you is, from Cancer Warriors' perspective, they, they are already facing this kind of challenge in their personal lives. And now with this disease, how exactly they can try and imbibe society? Well, I think, you know, first of all, when I'm working with somebody that's maybe in treatment, I think it's about priorities, right? And so True. 
if they want to exercise, you know, there are people that are really looking for that exercise. It makes them feel good. It makes them feel they have control of something. They feel normal if they exercise. They don't feel as normal, you know, if they're not exercising. So I think that there are those people that are like more motivated that we can definitely kind of grab hold of and do the plans. But what we really understand is that when we sit all day, we not only does our body not process um, medications or blood sugar like insulin. I mean, we just our our heart rate is is definitely going to be you know not only a little slower, but like our vascular system isn't working because our heart rate's slower, right? So we think about these simple things from being you know moving all day. I think the number one thing I tell people, especially in treatment, if they're tired and they don't exercise, is the move every hour piece. And again, I don't care if you're lying down or you're seated or you're standing in your kitchen. It's just move every hour in some way that feels good to you. If you can increase your heart rate, bonus. But I think it's just starting with something that's so accessible because a lot of people are just nervous to move, especially with cancer. There's sort of this, well, I hurt myself. You know, well, my how's my body going to respond? Am I going to get dizzy? And we need to remember that when we take care of someone in the clinical setting and we give them their treatment regimen, we warn them all the potential things that might go wrong or all the potential ways they might feel. And they've never had cancer. They don't know how they're going to feel. So I think it's sort of having a nice conversation of saying, okay, let's start with something simple. Let's build your confidence in your body and then moving into exercise from there. Again, we had this conversation last time. My purest exercise oncology colleagues and even myself sometimes, is that ideal? No. But if someone's not going to exercise 30 minutes, I'd rather them do one minute an hour than nothing. So I think we need to be okay and we need to be really mindful of where people are at and also what people have access to. And I think that's a global problem. Um, People just don't have the transportation or the finances or the time. And so we need to think very critically about living um, in in the world that our, our, our population is working with, which has many barriers. So I think it's really important to think about. Number one is confusion and lack of knowledge. So if you Uh think about the world of exercise or weight management, you know, we talked about obesity and you take a, you know, an online search over like how to lose weight or whatever, you're going to come up with all of the short-term things, right? Absolutely. So then you had cancer where someone's like, oh my gosh, I might die from this disease. And so then it becomes more important and they're looking for something that they can grab onto. There isn't a five-step plan, right? Absolutely. So I think, I think the barrier is getting through the noise of the junk and getting people down to what really does matter, which again goes back to the six pillars of lifestyle medicine and behavior change. So maybe you're not going to eat, you know, 100% plants, right? Or maybe you're not even going to eat 50% plants. But if you can maybe add a fruit or vegetable and not a seed, something to your lunch, and then maybe not have, you know, your soda or your very sugary coffee drink at the end of the day, we are now making improvements. I think knowledge is really one of the key things I see as a barrier in lifestyle medicine is that people really don't understand what truly matters. And they're so kind of sidetracked by all of the things that social media and marketing and all of those sort of, you know, hypey things that are out there. And I think it's really important that we, as, you know, stewards of this work, do provide that education because I don't think people um, need to go to boot camp, right? I think that they need to really understand what makes sense for them and not worry about the hype. Don't worry about it. Absolutely. And since we're talking about more from, say, the metabolic health aspect of of things, so it would Mm -hmm. be great to understand from you 
How do we break down uh, this for the audience? Yeah, this is, of course, like, you know, my favorite question, right? So metabolic health really is simply like how our body generates and processes energy. Energy means food. So whatever we take in, because we need calories to survive, it's how our body does that in an optimal way. So it's almost like your engine, right? And health in our metabolic health is really the health of your mitochondrial mitochondria, which are the cells at the very basis of your body. So what does that mean? Well, I mean, how healthy is my body? Can I process the foods that I eat? Does my body have the right response? Meaning, you know, is my my heart pumping well? Are my arteries in good shape? Is, you know, is my, do I have skeletal muscle? All of these measures of metabolic health are really key. We do know that we have something that we see in medicine called metabolic syndrome. Well, metabolic syndrome is sort of this precursor to diabetes. It's people that have high triglycerides, you know, low good cholesterol. They have abdominal obesity. Um, these sort of factors of have health create metabolic syndrome, which is just mm-hmm. basically saying like, hello, pay attention. You're probably going to have chronic disease. But it's really one and done where metabolic health, like everything in lifestyle, is fluid. Meaning if you and I got together and we decided we were going to just go to fast food and we were going to sit around and watch Netflix, we were going to, you know, complain, not sleep, whatever that is, our metabolic health would go that direction regardless of our history. Well, the flip side of that is I don't care what people have done five years ago or 10 years ago, through lifestyle changes, they can make improvements in their metabolic health, which again, how our body utilizes energy. Where that's key is we see that people that have better metabolic health live a higher quality of life. They have less diseases, they have better mental health, and by the way, they live longer. So to me, metabolic health really is kind of the pillar of longevity. It's just a, there's no pill and there's no, you know, magic cryotherapy for it or, you know, system. It's lifestyle, modifiable behaviors. So it's not complicated, but I think we sort of think about what's the fix. And there really isn't one fix for metabolic health. It, It is living a healthier lifestyle. I would say is one of the most difficult aspect of life. Easy for us uh, probably to understand and try and educate people on on metabolic health. That realization that one has to adopt a healthy lifestyle obviously takes time. And Mm -hmm. so how exactly do you deal with this kind of situations? Yeah, I I think that's such a, that that is the question of the day. I think my biggest um, practical advice from working in this field for so long has been if you don't understand someone's why or purpose, their goal, what what do they want to achieve? It doesn't matter. We're just giving them, you know, recommendations. So when I'm working in clinical healthcare, and I've done this for many years on and off, is before it was really consulting full-time, like I ran exercise oncology clinics and I would never walk in like, hi, I'm Sammy, I'm the exercise girl. You know, it was, I'm here to talk about your lifestyle and your wellness. Tell me a little bit about you. And if someone tells me about, you know, their happy place is spending time with family or participating, you know, in church or other religious events or walking their dog or they live in a two-story house and their laundry is downstairs. Uh-huh. You know, these things will set the stage for us as professionals to connect the dots. Because really, metabolic health seems sure. very like bougie, like, oh, I don't know. But when you start to talk about how people live their day-to-day life, yeah, you can help them understand how to make their life easier. You can help them understand that, okay, they don't want to take the medications that they've been taking often. 
like maybe they're taking medication for cardiovascular disease or diabetes or anxiety or whatever, then people start to listen because you're connecting the dots to them and you're making it appropriate to who they are and where they are. I will tell you one of the biggest mistakes I think we make in cancer is we really think people just want to survive the disease. And I think that's true. But at the end of the day, when they survive this disease without quality, Mm -hmm. we have taken away their purpose of going through these really difficult treatments often and given them a poor quality of life. And this is itself really a big problem in our survivorship care around the world as we get so focused on cancer that we sort of forget we're taking care of humans, right? So this is post-person care. So I think, you know, it's connecting the dots, but that's also thinking about it isn't just surviving, but it is the thriving side of things. And that is where all of these pieces um, come to play. But it has to be to the person. I mean, it just does if they're not going to do it. And I don't blame them, right? They're like, what do you know? And you're you're right. Yeah. (laughs) Someone who has to adopt or we have to develop a healthier metabolism in we things are quite dependent on the eco-stakeholders who we are connected. That includes... uh, doctors, family members, entire support system. So from your perspective, how exactly you would want to guide them in terms of supporting cancer warriors? I mean, great question. There are so many people that are, you know play a role in this and, and really need to be empowered. So I think the biggest thing that we want to keep doing is bringing forward what is lifestyle medicine. Because uh, although we kind of talk about this to be, you know, disease reversal, this is not cancer disease reversal, right? Like this is more the metabolic health diseases such as diabetes or cardiovascular disease. And I think sometimes people think, you know, lifestyle medicine is is alternative medicine. You know, I'm not going to do traditional treatment. It's really important to first say that lifestyle medicine is an adjunct to clinical care. You know, Absolutely. treating cancer with diet, I, I yes, I know people have done it. I don't really recommend it. I You know, I've seen more tragic stories out of that than success. And therefore, if it was my person, I would definitely not shirk away from clinical care, right? So I think it's first starting with, let's remind people that this is a supportive tool, the same way that we do in clinic, that if someone's going to have nausea or diarrhea, we know how to manage that, right? So this is that piece of lifestyle medicine. The other thing in working with clinicians or healthcare professionals and even policymakers, yes, we have policies and recommendations, right? But we need to think about educating people in ways that not only they they understand, but that really fit into the ecosystem of where they are and maybe what they have access to. So how we're going to recommend exercise for someone that lives in an urban or, you know, really city-based environment is going to be very different, yes, than something that, you know, somebody lives rural or someone maybe um, doesn't have the the financial means or they're working a full-time, you know, active job. So I think it's about Thinking about behavior change, which we all do, but we don't think about, is really key. But educating people just really simplistic, like, what is lifestyle? What does it mean? And giving them a real example, like, again, get up every hour, check. That's great. Let's start there. So I think it's okay, first, let's be more collaborative. And then second, let's let's simplify. We don't have to be so fancy. It doesn't have to be 150 minutes of exercise a week. Like, let's start with a minute and we're, we're doing okay. You know, I think that that's really key for people. Absolutely. In fact, I was just reading today morning, there there was a quote which says, if you cannot exercise for 150 or even 100 minutes, or if, even that's not possible, just try 15 minutes. I would pick up one pointer which you talked about just now is on doing behavior change. 
And that's mm. the toughest of it. So I definitely want to more understand more about how or different aspects. I mean, great question. It's like you said, what we what we do, right? So there, you know, we can use trans theoretical model, which is sort of that model of readiness. If someone, if you tell them about lifestyle and they're like run away or they give you 27 excuses. True. I did this on I was on a podcast not that long ago and someone asked me the same question about, well, how do you handle somebody that just doesn't want to do it? And I said, I don't worry about it. Not in a bad way. I've let yeah. them have the idea. And if they don't want to do it, it's not my job to drill it in, right? Like I am not cancer coming for their life. I'm here to support them. So I think that's the first thing to think about. Where is someone in readiness to change? Making sure we know their barriers. So when I was in clinical healthcare and I'd ask someone, tell me what you think about exercise. I cannot tell you the number of times someone say to me, I don't want to run. I'm like, well, that's great because I wasn't going to ask you to run. (laughs) But you know, it's biases and perceptions of where they're comfortable and uncomfortable. And so someone might say, well, I don't really want to sweat or I don't like to sweat. Tell me more. Or where do you want to exercise? Well, here in 2024, the technology has given us the ability to work with people in their homes, either live coaching or even self-guided with video or whatever that may be. And although that's not ideal, it's better than nothing. So I think behavior change really needs to look at readiness and barriers before we even think about how we're going to give recommendations, right? The, The last kind of piece of that is finding out how much somebody is willing to do and giving them something very reasonable in that versus saying, well, it's great that you want to do five minutes, but you know, if you did 10, it would be really good. It's okay. If they said they're willing to do five, let's give them five because they're probably only going to do two or three. So if we push too hard, I think we lose people because they feel like a failure. And I think that we live in a society that people are kind of struggling with that part of their identity. I don't think you need to tell someone that has a cancer diagnosis related to obesity that, oh my gosh, you know, you have a cancer diagnosis related to obesity that could change your outcomes. They know that. Our job as professionals is to help them by understanding what their motivations are long-term. So I think behavior change really is getting to know people a lot more than it used to be. Absolutely. And I I believe you talked about a very important uh, aspect that people need to decide. It's not about uh, just, say, picking up a particular time and then uh, sticking, uh, say, trying to just cover 150 minutes every week. It's, it's, they, can, they can start slow. They can try and make their modifications. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is true that most people still believe that uh, exercising is all about going to gym or probably going and running marathons, uh, which is mm-hmm. not entirely true, especially in 2024. We have different options. We have online videos. We can, we have, we can just go out uh, and walk in the park. So there, there are multiple options that are available. So another question that I have is more from uh, the different, especially, I mean, with different CS, we get overwhelmed because uh, there are a lot of things that we need to take care of. We need to focus on sleep. We need to focus on nutrition. We need to focus on exercise. We need to try and avoid certain types of food items and all of that. Obviously, taking care of everything in one, Mm -hmm. it's extremely overwhelming. How exactly someone should try and approach these? Minimize the impact? That's a great question. And actually, you know, I have this resource. um, And we just very briefly touched on this that we'll share with this audience. So the American College of Lifestyle Medicine really focused on, we created a cancer toolkit. And it's really for clinicians with behavior change. um, You know, it talks about self-care and caregivers. 
but it really breaks down the six pillars of lifestyle medicine, why they're important for someone for cancer, risk reduction, and survivorship, right? But what was the most important piece of this and what I'm really excited to share is we've realized that you know people do get overwhelmed and they just need one thing to try, right? So we created these single pager tip sheets where you know we call it dip, wade, dive. And what it means okay. is I'm just going to dip my toe in the water. So it's something that I can do in moments to minutes. Uh-huh. Wade is maybe like, I'm going to do something like, you know, an hour a day or my weekly habit. And a dive is like, I'm going to really try to hit those recommendations. And what that allows us to do as individuals, because we all get overwhelmed and when we get Absolutely. overwhelmed, things can go out the wayside, is to give really accessible, practical things that someone can focus on to build their habits. What people will see is if they, the more that they do it, the the better their default is, meaning when the wheels fall off of your life, when it's stressful, when you go into sort of a health crisis or a family member sick or you lose your job or, you know, the world implodes with a pandemic, your default has improved because you've made healthy habits and that's great. You're still going to maybe go backward. You're not going to be exercising. You're going to be, you know, sleeping terrible. But the more that we do these small, simple, accessible things for all of us, the more we improve not only our metabolic health, which is great, but our habit. And so then they become more ingrained in who we are, which I always call our identity. Our identity is made up of our habit. So people know me as someone who's in health and fitness and wellness. They expect that they're going to see vegetables on my plate or protein on my plate. If I'm going to be eating you know, a pizza, people are going to raise their eyebrows at me because I have the identity and I have the habit um, that go to that. So I really want people to kind of think about what are the habits that are implementable and just do it one thing at a time, just one moment at a time and you'll be successful. I think very, very rightly said about it. And uh, so uh, one one other aspect of it is, which I want to introduce is use of tech, especially now there are multiple mm-hmm. uh, options on technology sites. So any specific technology that you would want to recommend to people uh, would help them accelerate the yeah. use tech. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, first and foremost, I, I'm really excited. We talked about this briefly last time, but, you know, one of the things I wanted to do was to create an online accessible platform for people to learn really small behavior changes. So we created our shift program, which is a 12-week self-guided online course that someone can sign up for. It's 79 US dollars, one and done. It's really quite inexpensive. And it's 12 different lessons of all these different habits and it put together in a way that are kind of fun and digestible. So that to me was something that I I felt I had to put together to make it available and also something that isn't going to be too cost prohibitive. So that's one. However, there are many lifestyle professionals that can provide individual coaching and guidance, right? You know, we know that like we've talked about our our collaborator, Exe, which is an online app that does fitness um, and exercise for many populations focused on obesity and chronic disease. So yeah. very accessible, you know, on demand, you can download an app. I think that's Absolutely. really great for people um, to start. There's a lot of, you know, of course, YouTube and things like that. But I think truly there are platforms in every single pillar that really exist. I always tell people, start with the freebie. Don't commit to anything. If you're not going to use it, then you've not paid for it. So I think that, you know, sure. looking at Headspace or Calm, which are meditation apps, are great. But I would also maybe start on YouTube and try something for free and see if you're going to build it into your habits before you invest the dollars. Yeah. What role do you see of community? I think that in especially cancer, it is one of the things that people ask for the most. And I will say that we have gotten really good at offering, say, traditional support groups. 
But we have learned, especially through the last decade, that most, I shouldn't say most, but I would say a a lot of people, they don't want to be in a support group just to talk about it. They want strategies to do something. They're looking for a support group to find someone that they can connect with that's maybe experienced the same thing, that understands what they might be feeling physically, mentally, whatever that may be, right? So that's where support comes in. But what we are starting to see is people are looking for support in these ways that fit the identity of not just who they are or where they were, but what they want to be. So we're actually seeing a huge movement of communities that are wellness, lifestyle, hiking or dragon boating or, you know, working out in the gym or moms or, you know, professionals like, you know, coming up that there's a reason that they come in the door, but they want someone that understands who they are. The other thing about that is going back to this comment, our environment, we can do really good. But if my entire family is going to basically just want to do pizza every night or, you know, be loading the refrigerator with something unhealthy, then I'm fighting almost like against myself and them. And so influencing our immediate environment is really key. So I think it's having these conversations, engaging others around us, finding the right support system really help us when the day falls off. You have a, you know, somebody to go to. But cancer support communities are really shifting to healthy lifestyle because they're realizing how important living quality of life is. It's not just surviving. And I think that that's really wonderful to see, but it's going to take to accommodate. So the follow-up question that I have for you of understanding the food aspect, since we there, there are uh, challenges specific uh, when it comes to someone who is a patient in the family. So you you have a situation where uh, everyone in the family has to adjust to the diet patterns of the patient themselves in order to accommodate the food habits and the changes that are required in the diet. The other could also, there could also be scenarios wherein the uh, family tries and, and uh, creates their own separate meal, which is not very restrictive. These kind of conflicts are something which really as a lifestyle help the patients uh, say recover or try and build in it or even even try and uh, help the support system and family members build that kind of uh, standing I mean it's a great question I will say one of the things that we've seen in the last probably decade is when we were really worried about um, our patients that would become what we call neutropenic meaning they'd have a low white cut white blood count and in a weakened immune system. Uh We don't have as much of that concern that they can still eat fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, As an example, there was a whole thing about, you know, of course, still, you you don't really want to have like bad poultry or undercooked, right? You know, just because of the potential bacteria. But in large part, most of our individuals that are on cancer treatment really should strive to eat a very similar diet With one probably thing to think about, number one is, especially if they're on an IV chemotherapy that changes their taste, Uh there are certain foods that not necessarily are restrictive based upon the treatment. They're restrictive based on how the individual feels. Your gut goes through so much damage from treatment with medications, especially that, you know, what you used to eat, what you used to enjoy might taste different or make you nauseous. And so there's more of an aversion than anything. What I think is really important to say is just because someone have, has cancer doesn't mean they should eat whatever the heck that they want and we're on fried chicken, state uh-huh. thing, or you know any fried whatever food and a bunch of sugar. Now, if someone is really dramatically losing weight, we want to push calories, but we still want quality. 
So I think actually there's a mindset that someone has cancer and we should feed them these fatty high, you know, like nutri, like these foods that you'd find that are, you know, just tasty, you know, crackers and chips and whatever. And honestly, we are really need to get into the mindset that they need the the nutrients to heal. So I think that actually for the patient, nutritious food is really of utmost importance. And then kind of secondarily for the family, I don't mean that to be negative of the family, but the patient is the one that needs the recovery the most. So these foods are good for all of us, but at the end of the day are more important for us as, as patients, as caregivers, we have a responsibility to not baby somebody and not just give them junk because we want to make them feel better. We make them feel better in the moment, but we typically slow down their healing. So it's a sure. little bit of a different mindset in my mind and something I've seen in 20 years. It's like, we call it cancer casseroles in the United States. It's like somebody is sick and we just make these really high fat, high calorie, cheesy casseroles to sh- you know to put into their freezer. And I'm like, that is the worst idea, but it, it's kind, but it's not nutritious. So I think that's what I would probably say to people. And then of course we need to think about budget and being budget conscious, but like nutrition sure. is really, should be almost the same. It really should. Absolutely. It's wonderfully put together. That brings <laughs> me to uh, the last question for today's podcast. Yep. And and this is, let's try and understand top three recommendations that you'd have for cancer patients and also for our general public. So my number one recommendation is all about skeletal muscle. So it is making sure, so we as adults start losing muscle mass. You know, this is generally starting at the age of 30 for women, 50 for men. So if we're not combating that with strength exercise, not running, not aerobic exercise, pure strength exercise, we're constantly going to be going down that slippery slope of, you know, losing skeletal muscle. Skeletal muscle is one of the most important aspects of metabolic health because our muscles are actually their own organ. So they're Mm -hmm. important for how we manage glucose as well as cardiovascular health, et cetera. So Number one, all of us need to be meeting exercise recommendations from a strength perspective, which is two days a week, full body. I don't care how you do it, just do it. Yeah. Number two, honestly, is at getting added sugars out of our diet. It is everything I read about mental health, about gut microbiome, about longevity, about, you know, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and everything else really does tie back to added sugars. And of course they taste good and they're addictive. But to me, I tell people like, don't worry about how many vegetables you eat, but if you can lift weight or use your body and reduce your added sugars, you are on track to metabolic health with just those two things and everything else, just, it's fine. Like white rice, brown rice, you know what I mean? Pasta, whatever, like, but I'm just saying like, I think people get really nuanced and I think that those really are key. So those are my priorities and I can absolutely back that with science, um, which we didn't have 10 years ago. So I'm even more on that like platform now. So thank you for that question. That is an excellent, excellent question we need to communicate. Sure. Thank you so much, Sammy. It's it's always a pleasure speaking with you. And uh, I love the uh, incredible insights that you brought together. Thanks so much for having me. That's a wrap. Thank you for listening to Fitness Pro Chat by Fit Aerobic. We hope you had key takeaways from today's episode and learned something new. Don't forget to download and subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. And leave us a rating and review on your favorite platform. In the meantime, reach out to us on Instagram at Fit Aerobic or through our website, fitaerobic.com. And remember, failures will only make you strong and better learn. Take care, stay healthy, and live a fulfilling life with Fit Aerobic.